Welcome to the latest Bulls Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, the podcast is split into three parts. Our middle section is a fund manager interview. And joining me for this episode is Timothy Woodhouse, who is the fund manager of the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust. And in the final couple of minutes is our fund spotlight feature in which one of Interactive Investors' fund analysts will run through a fund that they like the look of. But before all that, is myself and Tom Bailey, the ETFs editor at Interactive Investor, to chat through a couple of news items related to funds and investment trusts. So Tom, let's start off with Scottish Mortgage, which is by far the most popular investment trust with Interactive Investor customers. The trust has been a great long-term investment under the management of James Anderson since 2000 and Tom Slater, who became the co-manager in 2014. At the end of next April, uh, James Anderson will be stepping down from the management of the trust. It has been a big winner during the pandemic due to a number of the types of companies it invests in, disruptive businesses that have a technological edge over competitors, gaining market share during the pandemic, during the lockdown periods. Its success, however, has attracted the attention of the campaign group Tax Justice UK, who, in a new report entitled Pandemic Profits, Who's Cashing In During COVID, accused several UK companies, including Scotch Mortgage, of profiting from the pandemic based on the profit increases over the past 18 months. Scottish Mortgage, in particular, was singled out for growing its profits by 801% compared to the average over previous years. Tom, you covered the report on II.co.uk. The authors of the report are calling for a one-off windfall tax on excess profits made during the pandemic. Could you shed some further light on this? Sure. So I think I think the key point really is to understand what is actually meant by profit here. So it's not the management fees of Scottish Mortgage and Bailey Gifford. It's not the uh, the share price gain um, for, for investors. What the profit here is referring to, uh, as, as the report uh, openly says, is uh, the capital gains that um, Cottage Mortgage has made from selling shares over during the course of the pandemic. So largely this is because um, of selling their Tesla shares. So as listeners will know, uh, Tesla had a great 2020. And Scottish Mortgage has been a long-time big holder. Uh, they went into the pandemic with you know, almost 10% of shares in, in Tesla. And so obviously it was Tesla's huge price rise for diversification reasons. Um, Scottish Mortgage sold lots of shares in it. Uh, and netted a big gain. Uh, also, you can kind of see it with some other companies which had a good pandemic, stuff like Netflix, you know, the usual kind of stay-at-home home stuff, which of Scottish Mortgage was, was buying for those kind of disruptive reasons. Um, but anyway, so basically the idea is that uh, Scottish Mortgage netted all this profit from the capital gains of selling these shares in its portfolio. And um, a, a, and so uh, Scottish Mortgage obviously when uh, being an investment trust, when it sells uh, shares and, and that's a profit in that in that sense in in the portfolio. It, it then uh, will often go and out buy uh, new companies with that money on top of other holdings, or it it, it could obviously distribute that to shareholders um, in the form of dividends or, or carry out buybacks. But Scottish Mortgage is more focused on growth, so that money will have gone towards investing in other companies. But the, the report kind of seems to think that actually this 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 uh, this net gains that Scottish Mortgage made in its portfolio should have been hit with some sort of COVID surcharge. 
which kind of it, it kind of it's treating an investment trust in in a way it's not really meant to work. So it's quite it's quite an odd odd uh, odd report really in that sense. I totally agree with you there, Tom. Um, it starts off by saying that you know as I've mentioned on the podcast before, my biggest holding in my ISA is Scottish Mortgage. But even if I wasn't a shareholder and the report was calling on another investment trust that I don't own to be hit with some sort of COVID surcharge on those grounds, um, my view will be exactly the same. And that is that there's no pot of profit that's just sitting there. It's being invested back into other companies. And in Scottish Mortgage's case, some of those companies are unlisted and desperately in need of that capital to grow and hopefully prosper. And in the case of Tesla and and, in, and indeed Scottish Mortgage's other tech-focused fo- holdings, yes, they did have a good pandemic, but they've been long-standing holdings for several years in the trust. It's not as if the trust just opportunistically switched into those companies during the pandemic in order to you know, try and make a quick buck. And in any case, I think Scottish Mortgage, and as I said before, any, any other investment trust, they should not be punished for skillful long-term stock picking. Uh, that's my that's my view. I mean, I could ramble on even more, but um, I'll leave it there. Yeah, and just one other kind of quick point is what they're throwing here as a profit is capital gains, which is, is kind of a technical profit in in the internal structure of the trust. But it's not the you know the end the end tax comes uh, from from the shareholders in who own the shares in the trust, right? So you know if if you own a special mortgage outside of a tax wrapper and you sold some of your shares, which have gone up a lot this year, you will pay the tax already. So in many ways, it's asking for a double tax as well. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah, it would be a, a double taxation in that case. We're going to now move on to um, active share. This is a piece of jargon that can be a useful aid for fund investors to avoid a substandard actively managed fund or a potential closet tracker, which is an active fund that is mirroring an index and charging a premium, um, claiming to provide active management um, when it's actually not. A fund's active share ratio where it's available, shows how much its holdings uh, differ from um, the percentage weightings in the benchmark. The higher the ratio, the more active the fund manager is likely to be. So a fund that holds the same stocks as the benchmark in the same proportions will have an active share of 0%, while a fund that is completely different from the index will have an active share of 100%. And there's a rule of thumb. It's, it's always been thought the funds that score below 60% are considered to not be active enough. So in other words, the full manager here is not showing enough conviction and is instead sticking too closely to the benchmark. But according to recently published research by Morningstar, there's a flaw with active share. Tom, you covered the research on ii.co.uk. Could you run through the points that Morningstar were making? Sure. So as you mentioned, there's this kind of idea of a uh, rule of thumb of, of having 6% or more for, for it to be a kind of good active fund. Uh, and, and that kind of rule of thumb comes from research applied to the US market. Um, this uh, piece of research from Morningstar says that actually, you know, we shouldn't be so uh, uh, sticks to the 6% in all markets around the world. Um, so basically, the paper says the active share of, fund, of a fund has to be understood in the context of the market in which it's investing. So basically, funds that invest in highly concentrated markets, uh, meaning you know, those markets where the biggest companies dominate the index, um, they tend to have a much lower share on average. Um, so it's kind of not fair to apply the 6% minimum to all active funds. So, for example, uh, the median active share for funds that invest in Germany, Singapore, or Italy, to give some examples, is quite low. And that's owing to the, the very concentrated nature of these markets. In contrast, the medium active, median active share for funds that invest in, in global or China or other, other kind of quite different markets 
uh, is much lower. So basically, if you're looking at your share, you've got to, it's not a figure you can just look at on its own. You've got to try and understand in context of what, uh, what pool the fund is fishing in. And if it's a high active, sorry, if there's a low active share, um, that you might want to kind of consider, well, is it a very concentrated market? Uh, and, and are you being fair to the fund in terms of what actually it's trying to invest in? It's certainly a very valid point. And I think it's definitely something that fund investors should bear in mind when looking at the active share metric. Unfortunately, though, uh, active share is not widely available. There's no requirements for fund management companies to publish it, either themselves on their fund fact sheet or to make the data readily available to uh, data websites. Given that it is a very useful metric, I, I do find that pretty disappointing. There are two quick things I think that um, every fund investor should um, look at when sizing up a fund in order to avoid a potential uh, closet tracker. The first is to take a look at its top 10 holdings and compare them with the fund's benchmark index. If there's a lot of overlap, you know, for instance, if there's eight or more of the top 10 being the same, then that would set off the alarm bells for me. And secondly, um, I think it's also useful to find a chart that shows how the fund has performed against the index over various timeframes. If the fund's performance looks very similar to the index, you know, if it's slightly lagging the index, then um, that for me shows the fund manager is potentially not active enough. And the final news item that we're going to cover is the high demand for investment trusts this year. It's already been a record-breaking year for fundraising. Tom, how much money has been raised so far and which types of trusts have been raising the most money? Yes, yeah, so I think the first thing is to uh, is to separate out um, secondary funding from IPOs. So in terms of secondary funding, which is investment trust raising, um, existing investment trust raising new capital for issuing new shares, uh, the figures for 2021 show um, have a record amount, uh, 8.7 billion has been raised so far this year. And the key thing is that this already exceeds the previous record for secondary funding, um, which was met in 2019 at 7.4 billion. So we're already way ahead of the previous record, and there's a few months, few months left of the year. Um, and in terms of which which trusts uh, are raising raising the money, uh, Shehalian Fund, a Bailey Gifford one that invests in um, lots of uh, unlisted companies, uh, that raised uh, the most amount of money in secondary funding at uh, 503 million. Uh, this year, uh, and the second place uh, was the newly launched digital online infrastructure. So the trust initially raised three hundred million at an IPO, um, which obviously is, is, is a relatively large amount. But it was also able to bring in an extra four hundred fifty million in secondary funding this year as well. Um, so it's had a very good year in terms of funding both IPO and secondary. And then when we come to primary funding as kind of IPOs, um, so far there's been nine investment trust IPOs this year, and collectively they've raised two point one billion. So a very popular year for uh, investment trust. There's also been um, a lot of investor demand for open-ended funds uh, this year. Uh, data from the Investment Association shows that um, fund flows are on track to beat uh, the record set in 2017. For our fund manager interview, I'm joined by Timothy Woodhouse, who is one of the full managers of the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust. So, Timothy, could you firstly summarise your investment style and approach? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Ultimately, at, at JP Morgan and for this trust, we believe in research above all else. We have a fantastic team of 85 research analysts based all around the world. We believe having them located close 
to the companies that they cover is critical. And that, that really helps them be experts in those companies and, and in those industries. That team has a $150 million research budget each year. So JP Morgan puts very significant resources behind that team. And that goes to all manner of things. That goes to paying for credit card data sets. That goes to sending people to visit factories in, in China and, and India. Really, this is very much on the ground research. It's very much in-depth research. And it means conducting thousands of management meetings a year too. And this is so important because the opportunity set is so large. So we cover 2,500 companies with those 85 analysts. But within the trust, we focus only on the best ideas. Be it a value stock, be it a growth stock, we're looking for simply the most compelling investments. As a result, I'd very much describe us as a, a go-anywhere core manager. And if I think about the past 18 months, that's been critically important as we've adapted to, to changing markets. Going into the pandemic, we were really focused on very high quality companies. When we were in March, April of last year, we saw a lot of opportunities in some of the structural winners that were suddenly trading at very big discounts to what we thought they were worth. And as we moved into September, October of last year, we saw what we thought was one of the biggest value dislocations that we'd seen for a very, very long time. And our ability to be flexible and go where we really saw the compelling opportunities has been very important. And when it comes to what we look for in an individual stock, well, we classify every single one of those 2,500 companies as either premium quality trading or structurally challenged. So these are what we call our strategic classifications. There are three pillars to, that go into deciding what classification a company gets. The economics, of course, we want to see good sustainable returns. We want to see strong cash flow generation. But perhaps more importantly is the, the duration of, of those economics. And there's a lot of different things that are considered in that. It's the barriers to entry for an industry, the competitive advantages any individual company has, the environmental and social risks and opportunities that, that of course, have to be considered in everything, the innovation and the R&D spend the company is conducting. All of that's critical to understanding not just the economics a company's earning today, but whether they continue to do that for many years into the future. And then the final pillar is governance. Governance is critical. We need to trust management for every company we own, because ultimately we have to believe that the cash they do generate gets deployed in a sensible way that benefits shareholders. And finally, valuation is absolutely critical. So we compare all of these companies on their long-term value creation, not short-term multiples. And what that means that we, we look for ultimately in a stock is that sweet spot of being a great company, being attractively valued, but then putting all of those idiosyncratic ideas into a portfolio that is concentrated, but also diversified. We don't want any individual factor, any individual macro event to be driving our performance. What we want is that, in, that stock specific insight that comes from our analysts, that comes from being close to these companies and really having them be experts in their industries. That is what, that is what we ultimately want to drive this performance. The fund has um, 60% of its assets in the US, which is in line with the MSCI All-Country World Index. So how does that US exposure in the trust differ from the index? There's a couple of areas I'd, I'd highlight. The first is that right now we're, we're underweight the very highly valued 
software names. And that that's quite a meaningful percentage of the, the index at this point. So to give you one stat, for the first time since the dot-com bubble, more than 25% of the S&P 500 is either loss-making or trading at north of 50 times price to earnings. I think that that's a pretty meaningful number and something we really have to watch because it speaks to just the re-rating that we've seen in, in a lot of what you would term the more growthy companies. We think that's a big area of risk for the market right now, and so we're staying away. I also point to a sector like industrials, which actually speaks very much to the way we think about comparing companies globally. We're underweight the industrial sector in the US, not because there aren't great companies. There are. There are fantastic companies in the US. But we see more attractive names in Europe. And of course, valuation is is critical to, to all of this. This is not about owning great companies, but being unaware of the valuation. We're sensitive to valuation too. And so really, when I look at the areas that we differ from the benchmark in, in the US, but also across the world, they tend to be very stock specific. For example, we prefer MasterCard to Visa right now within financial services. That's ultimately because we believe in the cross-border rebound that the MasterCard has more exposure to. Or within semiconductors, we prefer analog devices to NVIDIA. NVIDIA is an incredible company. They do a fantastic job and they're going to see the market for inference and training within artificial intelligence continue to grow. However, we think ADI is far more compelling from a valuation perspective, and that's where we're putting our money. So really what that ends up meaning is that the stocks we don't own in the US, the, the underweights to when we compare to the benchmark, are driven simply by finding better ideas elsewhere. And moving on to the uh, big US technology companies, I can see that uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet are the top three holdings, but Apple and Facebook are not in your top 10. Could you run through why that's the case? Sure. As, as, as with industrials and with, with other names, it, it tends really to be to just finding more compelling opportunities elsewhere. So Apple is a fantastic company. We think perhaps over the next couple of years, they are going to have some challenges within their services business. You've seen some of the lawsuits starting in the US and now moving into, into China around payments for the App Store. Uh, we think perhaps iPhone units have, uh, have peaked for now and that, that revenue is going to struggle to grow very much next year. But it's still a fantastic company and we have owned it in the past and there will be points, I'm sure, when the valuation is more attractive that we'll own it in the future. Same with Facebook. Ultimately, with Facebook, though, we look at what we'd be getting within that company, which is a lot of digital advertising revenue. And we believe that we get a better version of that at Google, at, at Alphabet. And within that, we also get exposure to the Google public cloud business, which is a fantastic business. And then to businesses like Waymo and, and Verily. Waymo is their autonomous driving business where they're the clear leader in that space. Not that I'm promising that will turn into something in the next couple of years, but the leadership and the, the miles driven there is going to be very important in a decade's time. Verily is an artificial intelligence healthcare business, which has already made some really incredible progress at doing things like identifying cancers using uh, artificial intelligence and hundreds of thousands of images. So there's some very innovative things going on in Google that we just feel make it a more compelling investment than Facebook. 
Amazon, you mentioned too, I think is an important one to mention because it's a company we've been adding to in, in recent weeks. It's really taken a pause for breath, I would say, since about this time last year, having had a very strong start to the pandemic. But within the retail business, they, of course, continue to gain share. They continue to add new verticals, continue to add new geographies. And then AWS, their public cloud business, is, is the global leader there. And the public cloud, it's, it's worth calling out, whether it's for Google, whether it's for Amazon, or whether it's for Microsoft. We think it's a huge structural shift that continues to be underappreciated in the market. Not only does it bring huge cost savings for companies, but I think one aspect that's underappreciated is that it can also reduce emissions up to 98% from data centers for, for companies. That's based on a study Microsoft did. So that's a name we are very comfortable owning. And as I said, we've been adding to. And you mentioned earlier that um, Europe's an area that you favor. And indeed, it's a notable overweight compared to the index. Could you explain where you're finding the opportunities and name a couple of stock examples? Absolutely. So, so as I mentioned, we're underweight US industrials with overweight Europe industrials. And, and one name there, one of the largest names in that space that we own, is a company called Vanshi which is a French company. They operate airport concessions and, and toll roads, as well as having road building and, and construction businesses. Now, as you can imagine, it's been a pretty tough 18 months in, in a lot of their business. They've seen traffic within airports still to this day down 65% versus what it was in, in 2019. In the early part of the pandemic, toll roads certainly took a pretty significant hit, although that traffic has come back in quite a significant way now. But there's more recovery to go too in, in road building and, and construction businesses. Now, you might say to me, well, that's just a cyclical industrial business. It doesn't sound particularly exciting. But I think what Vanshi has always done, which has always set them apart, is the very strong management and really the excellent cash flow generation, especially in a business which is cyclical, especially in a business where the next two years, shall we say, is still a little bit uncertain as to the trajectory. Continuing to deliver on the free cash flow expectations, continuing to hand it back to shareholders. The company has a nearly 3% yield. Those are characteristics that we really admire. And so we're very comfortable taking some cyclical risk within that company. On the other side of things, one I mentioned that we've owned for a long time is Novo Nordisk, the, the leader really in, in diabetes treatment along with Eli Lilly. At a very high level, Novo is going to benefit over the next 20 years by the sheer number of people who are unfortunately going to need treatment for, for diabetes. But I think one more recent aspect, which we've long been hopeful for that, is, that has come through is the approval in the US of Wagobi, which is a treatment for obesity. So in the clinical trials, it allowed a third of the patients that were tested to lose more than 20% of their body weight over 16 months. And it shouldn't be underappreciated just how large this market could be. It's going to take some time to get reimbursement in place in what is a notoriously complex US healthcare system. But ultimately, this could be a $10 billion drug in, in just a few years. I wanted to next move on to the uh, quarterly dividends that the trust pays. Is that dividend um, paid solely from the underlying investments or do the dividend reserves need to be drawn on? So this is a very important distinguishing feature in, in our mind. So at any point in time, the underlying yield from the underlying investments will contribute about a third or a half of the dividend at the trust level. 
The rest comes from the very significant capital reserves that have been accumulated over more than 125 years of, of operation. But what this does, and we think this is really important, is allow us to really find the best global ideas and not get drawn into whether or not those underlying investments pay a dividend or not. So we can focus on the capital appreciation of the stocks. And we think this offers the best of both worlds. You, you get the capital appreciation from names like Amazon and Alphabet, as we already talked about, that don't pay a dividend. But we offer a predictable 4% yield set at the end of June each year that gives clarity to our shareholders around the income they're going to receive for the following quarters. So we think that combination is actually very powerful. The cash weighting, um, last time I checked, was, was just over 7%. Uh, is this typical or is this in order to keep some powder dry in case there's a market pullback? It has, of course, been a, largely a buoyant period for markets since last April. Yeah, so this is something that we, we moved to over the course of the summer. So, so what you're seeing in that cash number is actually the unused gearing facility. So as of today, we are around 50 basis points geared, so 0.5% geared. And what you're seeing in that cash number is, is that right now we have the loan facility in place, if we want to, to go up to around 7.5% gearing. Now, as I said, we deliberately pulled that gearing back in the summer because we were concerned about valuations. We were looking at earnings momentum and, and seeing that clearly that had to peak based purely on the annual comps. And as I said, within sectors like technology, we have some real concerns about the way the market is viewing them. So we pulled back, we brought gearing back to close to zero, although, as I said, very slightly geared. And we're eagerly waiting opportunities to deploy that cash. We've, we've started to see a little bit of a pullback in markets now. And whilst we're not quite at the point where we're ready to add yet, this is exactly what we ultimately want to do with that cash. And finally, a question that we ask all fund managers that appear on the podcast. Do you personally invest in the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust? Absolutely. It's important that all managers have skin in the game. And I speak for myself and the other two portfolio managers on the trust when I say that. And of course, the performance over a rolling three-year basis also has an impact on, on what we're paid each year. And we very much believe that the compensation should be tied to performance as well as having investments in the underlying vehicle. The final part of the podcast is our Fund Spotlight feature. And for this episode, Liberty Godfrey, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor, is going to run through one of the funds in Interactive Investor's ACE40 list. So Liberty, what have you picked? So I've chosen Fundsmith's Sustainable Equity Fund, which invests in high-quality equities across the globe. It adopts similar investment principles to the better-known Fundsmith Equity Fund, but excludes specific companies and sectors from its investment universe. It will not invest in businesses that have substantial interests in aerospace and defence, brewers, distillers and vintners, casinos and gambling, gas and electric utilities, metals and mining, oil, gas and consumable fuels, pornography and tobacco. Since launch in November 2017, the fund has grown to a size of £618 million and it's managed by the highly experienced manager, Terry Smith, who is the founder and chief investment officer 
of Fundsmith and has run the fund since launch. For those that are unfamiliar with how Terry Smith invests, could you run through how he invests? And also, um, could you give a bit more detail regarding the ethical process? Yeah, so the manager aims to select high quality businesses that can sustain a high return on operating capital employed and whose advantages are difficult to replicate. He also looks for companies that do not require significant leverage to generate returns, are resilient to change and whose valuation is considered to be attractive. In addition to avoiding the sectors I've just mentioned, further criteria are applied to screen investments in accordance with its sustainable investment policy, which takes into account environmental, social and governance policies and practices, as well as companies' policies and practices on research and development, new product innovation, dividend policy and the adequacy of its capital investment. Could you drill down into the fund's portfolio and explain what areas it's currently favouring in terms of uh, geography, sectors, and uh, perhaps a couple of stock examples? Yeah, so the fund invests in 25 companies, meaning the concentrated portfolio results in companies having a meaningful impact on the performance. The fund is highly exposed to the US, with over 70% of the portfolio in this region. And other top countries for the fund include Denmark, France, and the UK. In terms of sector exposure, the manager finds the most opportunity within healthcare, consumer staples and technology, which together make up the majority of the portfolio. And some top holdings within the fund include L'Oreal, which is a French personal care company, Microsoft, an American multinational technology corporation, and PayPal, which is an American multinational financial technology company. And finally, how does the fund stand out from the competition? Well, the fund sits on the ACE 40 as a global equity adventurous recommendation. It also sits within the ACE considers category, meaning it carefully considers a wide range of ESG issues or themes when balancing positive and negative factors. It's managed by a highly experienced manager and the investment process aims to achieve long-term growth in value. Also, the fund is shown to be resilient over the recent difficult period. And in addition to this, the ethical process within the fund allows investors to be mindful of ethical issues whilst gaining exposure to companies across the globe. That's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And um, if that is the case, then do give us a like, tell your friends and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. There's much more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. So do check it out. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye.